Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan, and on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Sir Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So grab your luggage, make sure you seal up that summoning circle tight, and join us on our journey through the Rincewind Variety Hour, Faust, I mean, Eric, and the complete discography. Oh gods, why did you grab the luggage? Now it's angry! Okay, so tonight, <clears throat> obligatory Foley joke. Thank you, Justin. <laughs> tonight we are recording uh, about the ninth book in the Discworld series, Faust, or rather Eric, published in 1990 uh, for the first time, and we are cracking into the 90s here. And uh, yeah, this is a book. Um, we're, we'll, we'll, yeah. <clears throat> so, should we do our titles? I'm Anna. And I'm the gardener for all the potted plastic plants in hell. And that's a tongue twister right there. I toss it over to you, Minna. I am Minna, roofing contractor for all your topless tower needs. I want to go last. <laughs> uh, you want to go last? Okay. Yes. Uh, I am Aaron, supreme life president of hell, retired. I am Justin, whose hot takes lodged a thousand ships. That's a good title. And the ships is multi. I mean, that that, that that's a multi-layered joke there. That really is, since you are the you ships. and Minna are the uh, instigators for the shipping corner. Okay, so Eric is uh, kind of more a novella than a novel, um, and it has some failings. It has some good bits. But yeah, it's it's a book. It is a book. I think this one came out before I was born. God, we're, really? We're we're in my birth year, but I think the next one or the one after that is going to be like this book was published when Justin was alive. We're we're now solidly into Anna was alive territory. That was in third grade. We're two years before I was born. <sighs> okay. <laughs> I feel old. This is making Aaron sad time. Alright, we are here to talk about Eric. But because this is a Ritzwood book, guess who gets guess who gets summarization duty? It's me. I'm so sorry. Yeah. The Ritzwood books are like relatively easy to summarize at least. Um it's been like three books since we last saw Rincewind. Last we saw him, we thought him consigned to the dungeon dimensions. Alas, no good thing can last forever. Our story starts with death, tending to his bees, when suddenly he senses something. Oh. It's him. Rincewind, of course, is incapable of having a normal escape from the dungeon dimensions, it, as it turns out. He has been summoned by Eric, a 13-year-old demonologist. He wants to be granted his three desires, to be ruler of the world, meet the most beautiful woman in the world, and to live forever. Rincewind finds that, unfortunately, because he was summoned as a demon, he is subject to the rules 
of a demon. While exulting that he cannot just snap his fingers and make things happen, Rincewind snaps his fingers and unintentionally fulfills Eric's first wish. This takes them to the rainforest of Clash. Clatch. Eh, retake. This takes them to the rainforest of Clatch, where we get the pastiche of Mesoamerican cultures called the Tezuman Empire, and where I started drinking. The Tezuman declare Eric ruler of the world, and start to pay tribute to him at a celebration. Rincewind explores around the city and finds Ponce de Quirm, a wholly not pleasant ear sound of a name, and pastiche of conquistador Ponce de Leon, who is trying to find the Fountain of Youth. He explains that the Tezuman blamed the ruler of the world for all of their problems and planned to sacrifice him. Eric, Rincewind, and Ponce are all bound up and ready to be sacrificed when the Tezuman god, we're going to have to take this a couple times, Quetzalcoatl, that works, that works, Mm -hmm. who is actually a demon, makes an appearance. The luggage then catches up with the group, kills Quetzalcoatl, and the Tezuman promptly declare the luggage their new god. Fair. I mean, isn't he everyone's god? I, I mean, that, 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 I was very happy for that. I am all in favor of deicide and putting all hateful and all murderous entities in charge. I was raised Protestant, after all. Oh. <laughs> Zing. Um, Eric's next wish sees Eric and Rincewind, and eventually, belatedly, the luggage, transported back in time. Into a wooden horse. We have landed in a parody of the Trojan War. The Sortian War. Fought over the Lady Eleanor. The most beautiful woman in history. As they exit the horse, they are captured by soldiers from Sort who suspected a trap. They are eventually able to escape, but by trying to leave the city, they let the opposing Ephebians in, led by Levolus, who is about the only person in the entire war who seems to have any sense of self-preservation. Using a secret passage, Lavalus leads Eric and Rincewind into the Sordian Palace, and they find Eleanor there, who is now a mother of several children. The three, uh, Lavalus, Rincewind, and Eric, escape Sort as the city is burned, and Eric's last wish is granted, to live forever. Unfortunately, as we find out, to live forever means to live for the eternity of time, not the common way when we think about this of immortality. So Rincewin and Eric are brought to the beginning of the universe, there to see it until the end. There they meet the creator of the universe, who is trying to get some animals right and has an interesting tangent about snowflakes. To escape um, several million years of evolution and general muckety-muck, Rincewind has Eric reverse the summoning. This unfortunately takes them to hell. Throughout the book, hell has been going through a remodeling period. The new king of the demons, Ostagol, has decided that to maximize suffering, the ultimate torture is boredom. Thus, we have increased a lot of bureaucracies and gotten some new, updated, modern management styles. We get some nice Dante references as Rincewind navigates hell with the bureaucratic expertise of someone who has survived the Unseen University. Eventually, they escape hell with the help of Lord Vasanego, who was also supplying Rincewind with his demonic powers. Rincewind and Eric have been a distraction for the numerous lords of hell to make a revolt, who promote 
air quotes, Astfagil to Supreme Life President, shuffling him off to bureaucratic work for eternity, while the rest of the demons move back to old-fashioned torture. Eric and Rintwen, meanwhile, are allowed to escape so word of hell can spread. And that's Eric. It certainly is a book. Yeah. It's a series of plot events that happen to Rincewind. It sure is a bunch of events that happen in sequence, isn't it? Uh, we have a slightly more limited cast of main characters in this uh, this novella. Uh, Rincewind, Eric, and of course the luggage, along with the supporting cast of Ugh, Ponce de Quirm, and um, the parrot whom we will probably reference once and never talk about again. And uh, various oh, yeah, demons. There's, there's also, I think, um, Oswigal, or however the hell you're supposed to pronounce that, is also deserves note as he is a forward-thinking demon, um, and is referenced pretty, pretty often. Yeah. So Rincewind in this is slightly less. OG Rincewindy and slightly more sort of self-aware Rincewindy, it seems like. He is, uh, he's not pitiful. I think that's like the big distinction is he's not like horribly pitiful where I'm just like, I want to put him out of his misery and double tapping just to make sure. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, uh, Rincewind is a lot more... I don't know. It's like he, he's just less like he he whines and moans a lot less, which is definitely a point in his favor. I feel like this is a little bit of the turning point where Rincewind goes from being just a whiny coward to being someone sort of ordinary and hapless to whom awful things happen. Um, he sort of becomes a little bit more of the everyman. Um, and I think becomes a little bit more identifiable for a reader because you can kind of be like, oh, well, you know, I would probably respond like that as well in this situation. And the luggage is just even more the luggage than in previous books. I, I stand my problematic obdicidal furniture transcends time, space, dimension, whatever, to get... It's not clear that, he, that it cares so much about, like, getting... helping Rincewind so much as just getting near him in sort of a contractual obligation sort of way. Like, their paths intersect, but the luggage is mostly just there to be a lawnmower uh, to anybody who is in that path. And then there's Eric. There's Eric. Yeah. Kind of a collection of 90s nerd tropes. Yeah, Eric isn't a character so much as like an archetype. Mm-hmm. Portrayed as... Portrayed as sort of pasty and... I feel like in modern times, Eric would probably play a lot of Fortnite. Hmm. It had a... I don't really know what like Fortnite he... is, but I think he would play it. Had a weird science kind of vibe. He's he's that specific genre of like I don't want to say Disney Channel original movie, but Disney Channel original movie where like some 
kid manages to make something that is much bigger than uh, he can really deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I this, this is this is a this is a reference that I one hundred percent get. I mean, I guess it feels to me very much like a trope that was circulating in the time that this book was written. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. When I say Disney Channel's movie, I mean the ones that were kind of oldish when I was starting to watch them. Yes, we know right. you're young. <laughs> Terry Pratchett, Terry Pratchett, make me make me your cadet Kelly pastiche. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Monstrous Regiment spinoff. Oh, what? Did I make a thing? Mm. Maybe. No, I'm just daydreaming about what could be. It's fine. So yeah, Eric is kind of encapsulated by uh, Justin's plot summary and becomes less and less relevant as the story goes, really. And we'll get into this, but largely I'm fine with that. Yeah. 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 Eric is a Discworld child TM that I really would not like to learn more about. Yeah. He's kind of just a gross 15-year-old. I mean, I, I don't want to say gross, but like... Nah, he's gross. Yeah. He's... Yeah, some of the stuff... Mm. Yeah, never mind. I just remembered the bit about horology. Mm. This is This is, I think, also... I feel like Terry doesn't have a super great handle on like ages of children because I feel like <laughs> Eric is much closer to being a 15 year old than like the, the 13 year old that he theoretically is. Oh, wow. I forgot what age he was supposed to be. And yeah, he does feel like 15. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Terry is bad at child ages. I mean, ask. <laughs> yes. I think that's like, I think, uh, you know, that's a thing that I'm like with a lot of authors that, you know, reasonable. Uh, like. Also, also Mort. Mort was also nebulously aged. Yeah. Well, and Carrot is like canonically 15 or something in what? guards. That man is in his 20s. Yeah. Uh, especially coming from coming from a culture where you exit puberty at around sixty, so yeah, I definitely read carrots right, as being like is. around eighteen to nineteen mm-hmm. in guards, yeah, mm-hmm. and like early to mid twenties almost in in men at arms. Anyway, uh, should we talk about hell a little bit? Uh, yeah, let's talk about let's talk about our king of the demons, Astvigal. Can I buy a vowel, please? I'm not gonna lie. I forgot how to spell his name, and I just started writing bracket gargle noise close bracket I, in the doc for for both. Uh, when I was writing the summary, both Astigal and Quetzalcoatl are both copy pastes. Oh, for sure. It's why it's why in my summary the hell part is the last paragraph and not interspersed <laughs> like it was in the narrative. You can tell. This is the quarantine summary, folks, where the copy-paste determines what order the plot gets revealed in. Read the book if you want to know the whole thing. <laughs> or, or you know, don't. Yeah. And just take our word for yeah. it. That's up to you, dear listener. I mean, it's, it's an okay book. It's fine. It's, yeah. It's- I'm looking forward to, like, talking about what works and do- uh, doesn't. But let's talk about hell. Yeah, the, the hell in this book is kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah, I think, like, my thing was, 
It doesn't feel Discworldy. I will say that I will fully believe in this hell in Discworld as long as it's like one of like a whole bunch of other hells. Because I like the I don't remember if it got like Jost, but the or retconned, that's the word. Um <laughs> the idea of like people kinda of going to the afterlife they expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's actually referenced directly in the text of the book. Uh, yeah. The the gods of the disc have never bothered much about judging the souls of the dead, and so people only go to hell if that's where they believe in their deepest heart that they deserve to go, which they won't do if they don't know about it. This is this explains why it is so important to shoot missionaries on sight. Yeah. <sighs> which is such a good line. Rather, this isn't the only outcome. It just happens to exist because people believe it exists. Right. In pyramids, the yeah. they, you know, they believe that if you don't do your duty, you're eaten by something or other. Yeah, I think it's just like... I, like, I can accept it being one of the hells, like in Discworld. And yeah, actually, I, I had the quote about shooting missionaries on site yeah, highlighted in my thing, which I found funny just because my mother was a missionary. Um, at some point, uh, it just doesn't feel in the hell we get depicted. It just doesn't feel discworldy. It feels like a very lukewarm take on hell, and there's nothing particularly clever about it or cruel about it. I, I think that the only part of it, you know, it definitely feels like a sort of knockoff of Dante's Inferno except with lots of jokes about like late 80s early 90s management theory which that the management theory part feels like Discworld to me it does yeah but it, it's we only really get that for like 20 pages and it's just like we can get we can get into this later but i actually feel like i would have almost preferred more of the hell stuff to flesh it out more because I felt like it doesn't quite mesh with this world super well, but it's also one of the stronger pieces of the book. And it's also not just hell. It's like a mishmash of hell and like Hades stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, because we get... Which is interesting. Because we get Prometheus. Yeah, not just Prometheus. I'm pretty sure Sisyphus is in there. Like, just just the classic ones that everyone references with like Hades punishments. It's kind of that western idea of what punishment after death is, just a mishmash of that. Shit. I actually did like the Sisyphus bit mainly because of the, you know, the joke about the 7000 volume health and safety regulations thing. But I did like Yeah, it. That, that was, was good. good. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've heard a bit too many bits about how Sisyphus's punishment was like not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> There's actually a, a John Finnamore sketch that uh, happened well after this book, so I'm sure it's not that original either, but uh, about how it's more a punishment for Hades than Sisyphus. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Astvigal is, I guess, you know, the new new boss with new ideas trope. And also sort of leaning hard into the a concept I kind of like with with demons that we, I guess, also sort of see in Good Omens that I think somebody else pointed this out. Yeah. Um, you know, with the banality of of demonic evil. Aspergal definitely is reminiscent of Crowley in some interesting ways. Um, in 
you know, getting into that banality and and the idea that humans are better at being evil than demons are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a world where he's in charge of the hell and good omens, and Crowley is like a prince of hell. So, yeah. I'm just looking at the timelines. This gets released about the same time as Good Omens. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, he must have been going through a demon's moment. <laughs> and he quickly discarded it. Actually, actually reminds me a little bit of The Good Place as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the... The organization of hell definitely reminds me of The Good Place. So, Minna, I think you had a question there on clarifying something. Uh, it's not necessarily a particularly good question. It just shows how much I don't remember shit about pyramids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, because... Have we seen Sort before? I feel like I recognize the name. Yeah, because... Um, yeah, they were sort fighting and pyramids. Sort are still fighting. at war in pyramids. And they've they've now both weaponized mm. the wooden horse in pyramids. That was that was the main reason why I remembered it. Remember, they're both sitting on opposite sides of the field, waiting on their own wooden horses. Yeah. He just he he is gonna take his dead wooden horse and beat it into the ground. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Legitimately, also on that along those lines. This is a side note. Also, there's like two lines from Faustus that he has now referenced like four times in this book and at least once in Weird Sisters, I swear to God. The one about launching a thousand ships and burning the topless towers of Ilium. I mean, that's also an an Iliad reference, right? Well, yeah, no, no, no. Just specifically the phrase. Okay. Um, like, the phrasing is specifically from the Marlowe play, I think. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? I think it's probably, yeah, it's one of those lines that sort of probably just sticks in your head when you get a classical education. Yeah, it's definitely surpassed the play, (laughs) Yeah, I think. So should we quickly dance through the, uh, impressions? For my part, I thought that Terry seemed more enthusiastic about Rincewind as a kind of general concept and character um, than he was way back in Sorcery. Um, It's a weird jaunt of a book, but I think Rincewind is better characterized overall. Um, He's a little bit more relatable. Terry's leaning more into the sort of normal person with normal reactions, which is scream and run away than being actively cowardly. Um, which I think is a better look for Rincewind. Um, and I, I, it's a strange book. Um, you know, Eric himself is, uh, is not, not good. And that whole Mesoamerican thing, thing that we will I'm sure talk about was uh that I could have done without that completely that was not not good yeah like I I remember being big I remember finding this book funny when I read it uh it's it's a Rincewind novel it's fine 
there's some there's some very funny bits. There's some moderately funny bits. There's some bits that yeah we could do without. It doesn't feel like a Discworld novel to me so much as like Terry fanficking his own OC. I don't know. Uh, because even Eric, who the book is named after, just feels like yet another plot that is thrown at Rincewind as opposed to anything anything really meaty. Yeah, and there's a lot of funny bits. I will say, I have turned a corner where Rincewind gets mentioned, and now I'm like, oh, cool. Which is uh, not a place I ever expected to be. I know, like, at some point, uh, I think when Death got someone in there where he was like, it's going to be Rincewind, and I was like, yes, even though I knew that's where it's going, you know? Uh, How much of that is just enjoying the antagonism, friendly antagonism between Rincewind and I Death? do absolutely love that rivalry. <laughs> but also just, like, when you realize a one in a million chance... And then you realize, oh yeah, yeah, this 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 is how Rincewind gets into this situation. I know he is going to be in for this. Also, <laughs> still love the luggage. There are some you know what? You know the luggage is going to show up and and smash through something, like Kool-Aid smash through something and save the day, <laughs> but you still get excited when it happens. Mm-hmm. It's a good boy. It's it's one of those things, uh, and I think I mentioned this later in the forum, but like where something becomes enough of a recognizable formula that you just start getting happy about it when it shows up. <laughs> so, I like Rincewind more here. And I think I am the most vocal detractor of Rincewind shit on here. Um, I think he is bridged to somewhat entertaining and not just eye-rolling. Um... Like, he's forced to interact with shit, and that's good. Um, this is... It still, however, is the Rincewind novel format of... There is a few subsequent situations that Rincewind gets introduced to. They happen, and there is the sketching of a plot behind it. Which is really weird. It's just like every single book has followed that pretty much to a T. And I don't know why it happens like this. Um, Mm -hmm. There's no, like, there's no strong through lines in any of these books, and it's weird. Yeah, it's like Terry has a bunch of ideas and is like, how do I make these happen in the book? I guess I throw Rincewind at them. Can we call this the Rincewind Variety Hour? Yeah, yeah, that (laughs) works. Yeah. It almost feels like a bunch of short stories that were like pasted together with and then Hell is revisited concepts beaten into the ground. Uh, <laughs> it's just we've had the same thing basically with the words, words, words. Words, words, words. Um words. <laughs> we've, seen, we've seen the Rinswood variety hour format just like get beaten into the ground. But, like, at least for this time, we get, like, a... We get some variety... We get some change-ups to the formula, and that definitely works a lot better. But, yeah, it's, like, it's the same concept, and it's still pretty... uh, 
But at least it like it works better this time around. Oh, sorry, I just understood the sentence hell is revisited. You mean hell is made of revisited concepts beaten into the ground. Okay. Yeah, like <laughs> Like, like it, hell like, is like, other I people. Was... Like hell is other people, but instead yeah. hell is revisited. Yeah, physique. yeah, yeah. Okay, I understand this now. We're just going to make early modern playwright references today. Speaking of which, <laughs> uh, so, hi, uh, I really like Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, and this is clearly riffing off it, so of course the way I'm reacting to it is related to that. But it's actually kind of funny, like, the way that this book feels to me is a lot more Machiavellian than some of the Discworld books come off. Like, there's always, like, a little like a little aspect of, oh, a lot of things are illusions, this is the truth, but, like, we've got Rincewind and Lava... <sighs> Rincewind and Laviolus on one side, like, on the, on the protagonist's side, who are kind of giving us the ideas on that side. And then we've got the, whatever his name is, on the antagonist side, and they're those three characters are all very like, you know, the the pretty words we dress everything up in, the like cool imagery we dress up everything up in is bullshit. This is how the world really is. There's no sense like not doing that, uh, or not adhering to that. So it's it's kind of funny to me that that is specifically the worldview on this one because also Marlowe is. Marlowe leans very Machiavellian, and specifically in Dr. Faustus, he does. Uh, so it, it's just interesting from the standpoint of, like, what he chose to adapt and, like, where where this book leaned. Uh, I won't say it was necessarily done well, because I think it was a fairly weak adaptation, and I'll probably get back to that. But still, it's interesting to me that that's what happened here. It's sort of like how... Weird Sisters is actually a pretty weak adaptation of Macbeth itself, despite being yeah, a really fun book. With a yeah, lot of I, like, good references. I don't necessarily like his actual like adaptation of the plot material, but like the way it kind of touches on like other ideas in the book he's writing is interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that this isn't leaping to his defense about weak adaptations so much as I'm not sure that they're ever really intended to be adaptations so much as him plucking an idea or two out of them and spinning it off in a different direction, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, Just for me, it's like the actual plot that results isn't necessarily the best plot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like there could be a better plot here, but he's just doing the weak adaptation instead. It's interesting to me that you're highlighting Leviolus because I thought he was um, really interesting as a Vimes-like character. Um, there's that scene where Leviolus is introduced um, that as as you know that he did which was tarnished, and he had the helmet which looked as though its plume had been used as a paintbrush. But he was skinny and had all the military bearing of a weasel. Um, it's it's actually you know that that sort of 
beaten down person who's actually very good at tactics and is much more concerned with um, acting in his job rather than looking like his job. Um, it, it, it struck me as very similar to Vimes, like that, you know, how Vimes hates you know, helmet plumes and etc. Yeah, I'm getting Vimes vibes honestly off both Laviolus and a little bit Rincewind in this one. Just a little bit. Just, I think it's just that very put upon air that yeah. they all kind of have at this point. But also, like, uh, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. and Like, buckling down just, and seeing how the world really is. Yeah, pragmatism. Like, if this, then do that. Yeah. As opposed to, if danger, then run. Not even necessarily that so much as, like, the... Because I think Vimes also has that thing where he doesn't care about the look of the thing. He doesn't even necessarily care about, like, the the high-level concepts he just is like well this is how it is uh we're gonna see how this is and then we're gonna fix it which i think Mm -hmm. is also a little bit how aviolus is it's some interesting parallels there though there's a whole rant on leadership that i'm not going to go into here catch me somewhere else if you want to hear about fox and lion leadership styles and the movie 12 o'clock high and some other stuff (laughs) (laughs) also i just want to point out that we're like yeah, we are 45 minutes into recording the actual episode, and I am like two-thirds done with my booze. <laughs> oh, Just gotta get more booze. We better hurry up then. Well, we don't have yeah. anything under what are the other main themes of the book. There's not a lot like to go with you. I feel my theme section well. I feel like I wrote it better, but whatever. Uh, we all know I'm a better writer than I am a speaker. We're getting our, we're getting our like, Faust Dante crossover mismatch, which I think like both of them aren't served well by like interacting with each other. You pick, if you pick one, it's a better fit than both. Yeah. Hmm. But that is mostly just my take from the book is that like if you're gonna go Faust, go full Faust. Oh, or but don't yeah. but don't toss the don't toss the Dante in. We're like, they're two different writers. They're two different things they're trying to do. What 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 is what is a guy dragging all of northern Italy in three books? <laughs> I'm assuming that's Dante. Yes, Dante was like, <laughs> I'm gonna write about people I I I. I I'm going to write about people I don't like. Oh, what circle of hell is the mayor in? I agree with you. The Faust stuff is like a lot lighter than it should be. Probably partly because Rincewind is doing the Mephistopheles role, which is... uh, Rincewind could not be intimidating if he tried. I don't even think Mephistopheles is necessarily that intimidating so much as like he adds a lot of the actual pathos to that. Like the like... Oddly enough, the grounding to that story, uh, whereas Rincewind... I mean, I guess Rincewind is the grounding factor, but he's just, like, not... I don't know. The 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 hell stuff is not... We're not going to, like, get, like, a serious emotional connection to it, if that makes sense. Which, you don't have to, but it would be uh, more fun for me, personally, if it did. Like, between him and the way hell is, like, we never take that particularly seriously. Yeah. 
I say seriously, I keep saying seriously, I just want that emotional connection. Like, when Discworld, like, hits that emotional connection that, like, ties in with the comedy, that's when it gets good. The book has such a weird length. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, 100%. It, I think it would have been, in some ways, better if it was shorter and more to the point. Um, it would have been kind of concise and funny. Um, and had the had the good goofs. And then I think it would have been also potentially more interesting if some of the stuff had been dived into more deeply with a more serious take on um, Faust and or Dante. There is, like, also light touches on, like, time travel and, like, how stuff gets carried in historical memory. Again, you'd need a lot more space for that to give it justice. Yeah. Uh, and also not make jokes about how Eleanor is ugly in ways that I don't oh, really enjoy. Yeah. Uh, also. And and also like a weird forty page diversion into the Iliad and the Odyssey. We, yeah. Just I pick mean, a classical. Just pick. Just pick a classic and go with it. God damn it. Honestly, no, no, no. He's valid here. For me, he's <laughs> valid here because that is. Okay, if we're saying he's structuring this on, like, a three-wish structure, but, like, also tying into the Faust thing, Helen being a major node of this super makes sense. That's one of the major things that Faustus wishes for. It's just also not terribly good. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we if we got something... Okay, this is this is the Justin Strazen to fanfiction. Give me... The Catch-22 parody with Laviolus. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Like the tr- the, the Sordian War Catch-22 thing with Ritzwin's ancestor. That would be a good book. And you know what? You know what? I think I, 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 think I figured this out, especially with the Helen of Troy stuff and all the other stuff. He is swinging for too many of our so-called yeah. buttons. He's he's going for he's going for too many big statements yeah. in yeah, too little space. I feel like he can't come back to a lot of this stuff, and there's like more gold that could be mined from this. It is very funny. It is very funny to me that Rincewood's ancestor was basically Odysseus, though, because that is just such a fucking Rincewood yeah. thing. I mean, Rincewood is... home, the- takes ten years, and there's a billion yeah. diversions. Yep. That, that is a very Rincewood thing. Rincewood is the person who would tell nobody, who would tell a giant that he is nobody. Yeah. He would. Uh, yeah, no, everything about that is so on brand for him. Uh, the only thing that's not on brand is that he would have a wife that's willing to fight suitors off for like ten years for him. Yeah. Yeah, fair. Hey. For the reader at home, it is noted that Laviolus uh, roughly translates to rinser of winds. Bad, bad, bad classical language mashup, and I kind of love it. It's just such a dumb aside. And (laughs) and super close to, in in mouthfeel to Odysseus. I do have to, I do have to ask a question. Um, because this is the only time we're going to probably get to reference classical Greek stuff here for a while. What uh, what direction does a Cyclops wing uh, their eyeliner? Both sides. Well, it doesn't matter because no one will insult them anyways. <laughs> <laughs>
Ah. Sorry. That was worth it. <laughs> we can cut that. I just wanted to see Vinna's reaction. Beautiful. That's <laughs> uh, just, this, yep. you I know, just, just filling I up my outtakes folder. Nobody joke. It's a good it's bit. It's a good bit. I had a bit also in this about the European explorers, but I think that we're going to touch on that later, yeah. right? Yeah. There's no way. There's, there's. I wish there was a way we were getting out of this without talking about this. Yeah, we're gonna. Um, if we all drink faster, yeah. maybe we'll erase that third of the book from our memory. Uh, sorry, I've got too much left still. Uh. So let's talk about the parts. You know, I I just said that the there were too many button attempts yeah. at this, but let's talk about the buttons that did work. Well, I think that like there there is a point where um, it is observed in the narrative that military thinking is primarily just throwing bodies at a problem until the problem resolves. And as somebody who has studied history, well, that just feels a little too real. <laughs> also, the, the, the current state of the world where we are where it is decided that we should risk people's health and safety because numbers. Meanwhile, I, you know, going back to my copy of the book, you know, I realized, so I originally didn't put anything in the framework here for the button because I didn't really remember anything. But going back to my copy of the book, I realized that I have like a dozen things dog-eared as like, you know, some of those are funny bits and others are kind of potential buttons, but I think it says something that none of those really stuck with me. Um, I think I did highlight a bunch of the stuff that all of you, the rest of you noted, but nothing really stood the test of reading the entire 155 page book and sticking with me to the end. The One of the ones that, that really stuck out to me uh during the uh Ephibian Sordian conflict. Uh the historians also failed to note another interesting fact about ancient Clachian warfare, which was that it was still at that stage quite primitive and just between soldiers and hadn't yet been thrown open to the general public. Basically everyone knew that one side or the other would win, a few unlucky generals would get their heads chopped off, large sums of money would be paid in tribute, etc. etc. Uh basically saying that their their war is primitive because they don't consider civilians valid targets uh felt very terry sort of backwards snarky i also the one thing i like about the uh clutch jungle bit jungle the the thing i like i actually liked about the clutch bit was like kind of the gargle noise guy uh his his i will never pronounce his name he he has like an aside or like a thing where he's talking to the demon who uh, basically started up that religion and he's like, so what you're telling me is that you made sure a bunch of innocent human beings would die instead of taking a perfectly good uh, basis for people who would become very, very bureaucratic and doom a lot more souls that way. Uh, and you're telling me it's a good thing? Uh, and I think it's almost like a... It's, it's very tuned into kind of 
the worldview that comes out when Pratchett deals with angels and demons, where it's like, yeah, uh, there's sort of a, a thing where spreading like a lot of like low grade soulless evil is almost like worse than like specific curated acts of overt evil. It's very Crowley. It is very Crowley, but I think it's also just a lot of, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, it is very Crowley. Um, the the other line that really stuck out to me, um, I can't remember exactly where in the novel it is, but uh, the trouble is that things never get better. They just stay the same, only more so. That's a mood. So what do we like about the book? Yeah. It was a goof. It was funny. It was like, it, it was a, it was a, it was a hearty jaunt. I did read, like, 54% of it just lying in my bed on Sunday morning, and that was, that was quite a pleasant morning to spend, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it fits into, you know, some of the other books where you ultimately come down on, like, this was fun to read, but not actually very good. And I think, I think that there's a realm of books that are like that, that can be fun to read, but don't really stand up to scrutiny. You know, I, there were a lot of really funny lines that I really enjoyed. There's a lot of really clever wordplay and a bunch of those little, like, I felt like the footnotes in this were particularly good. Like the line that you highlighted, Justin, with, you know, why it's important to shoot missionaries on site. There's also the bit with the, with the librarian, you know, shelving books in the erotic section and the, the distinction between your things are erotic versus kinky and it's the difference between using a feather and using a chicken, which I think is, you know, does kink a disservice, but is also very funny. There were a lot of just really bits that I shouldn't necessarily have laughed about, but did like laugh slash snicker about while I was reading. Yeah. And you know, (laughs) If the Mesoamerican pastiche that we keep referring to hadn't happened, it would have yeah. been just a funny book. You know, it's it's weighted down by that particular anchor. And I mean, yeah, you know, more luggage stuff. Oh, there was that there's that bit too of it's the stereotype of the the Amazonian princesses who, you know, wind up killing men because they, you know, use them for stereotypically male things. Uh, I've got the quote here actually. You mean mysterious ancient races of Amazonian princesses who subject all male prisoners to strange and exhausting progenitative rites, said Eric, his glasses beginning yes. to fog. I don't like when Eric talks. <laughs> yes. Um, but then Eric, the, you do not have talking rights. But the, it's it's taken in a in a funny direction that this is one of those lines where like I'm not sure if it deserved to be as funny to me as it was, but this is because wiring plugs, putting up shelves, sorting out the funny noise in attics, and mowing lawns can eventually reduce even the strongest constitution. And as somebody who's been doing a lot of house renovations recently, that's a mood. Mm-hmm. Another one of my favorite little details was uh, later in the book where the, where the luggage encounters the gates of hell, uh, stares the gates of hell down, they open for him for it, uh, and then it just sort of petulantly kicks them as it goes by. Uh, there, there's a moment. 
There was no way to describe how angry you can get running nearly twice the length of the space-time continuum, and the luggage had been pretty annoyed to start with. It looked at the hinges. It looked at the locks. It backed away a bit and appeared to read the new sign of the portal. Possibly this made it angrier. Although with the luggage, there wasn't any reliable way of telling because it spent all its time beyond, in a matter of speaking, the hostility event horizon, which... My I child! I love that phrase so much! <laughs> yep. I just... Okay. My favorite passage, and this is so silly, because it's not necessarily important, but at some point, the creator of the universe gives Rince Wind an egg and crest sandwich. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then the world circles back around from the end of the universe to the beginning of the universe, I think. Oh, no, 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 no. They've gone back to the beginning of the universe. Yeah. That's right. Um, and then he, like, considers this sandwich. There was still no mayonnaise in it, and the bread was soggy. But it would be thousands of years before there was another one. There had to be the dawn of agriculture, the domestication of animals, the evolution of the bread knife from its primitive flint ancestry, the development of dairy technology. And if there was any desire to make a proper job of it, the cultivation of olive trees, pepper plants, salt pans, vinegar fermentation processes, and the techniques of elementary food chemistry before the world would see another one like it. It was unique, a little white triangle full of anachronisms lost and all alone in an unfriendly world. He bit it anyway. It wasn't very nice. Yeah. It just... It's good. I really... Sometimes Terry Pratchett just lets loose with the writing and writes something lovely, and it doesn't need to be there, but it's great, and I love it. And and that's followed up, too, by... Let's see if I can find the line here. The tide got on with things. Further down the beach, the last surge poured into a hollow in the rocks, and the new sun beamed down on the soaking remains of a half-eaten egg and crust sandwich. Titled action turned it over. Thousands of bacteria suddenly found themselves in the midst of a taste explosion and started to breed like mad. If only there had been some mayonnaise, life might have turned out a whole lot different. More piquant, and perhaps with a little extra cream in it. Like, th those two... Those two lines are just, they're, I feel like, some really good, they, they go together so well, and they're both really good pieces of writing. Okay, so we're, well, let's just go through other things. Uh, Asphagal spends a lot of the book chasing or trying to figure out what the heck Rincewind is. <laughs> so when Rincewind, so Rincewind on The Last Wedge disappears from Asphagal's Surveillance. So Asphagal surmises that there can only be two places in he, that he can be, and chooses the wrong one, which means that he goes to the end of the universe. Which then he asks, anyone there? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Apart from you, I mean. <laughs> that had such a good bit of cosmology there, too, because death is just sitting there waiting for the universe to begin anew. It's a really good section because it has death waiting for the universe to start again with life, and we have a fantastic footnote about paperclips. Also, also right after he asks if you've seen anybody and is there anybody else, uh, Asu is like, I thought there might be someone called Rincewind, but, and death is like, the wizard? <laughs> that <laughs> fucker just like, even at the end of the universe! Fish what? 
And also, also the the Demon King's uh, his realization the the what? Beautiful, beautiful. I love everything about that scene. A human? It is stretching the term a little, but you are broadly correct. I love it. <laughs> I, I like I like death's casual disdain for Ritzwed. Yeah. Hey, I was joking about shipping corner, but I think I might be not joking now. <laughs> oh, and also along with the Asikmal trying to find out who Rizwind is, we get all these really good sequences where he's like trying to figure out which demon Rizwind is, and it's like Rinzwand, and um, you know, all these all these names that are like sound vaguely more demonic than Rincewind, but are very similar, and it's just very funny. Is there? I think we've we've gone through a lot of the stuff that we've talked about that like stands up particularly well. Uh, Is it time? Can we talk about this? We gotta. Okay. It's time. So, so we're gonna ease into this. We're gonna start by talking about that fucking parrot. Oh God, fucking parrot! I do not remember if this parrot has a name. I do not care whether it has a name. I just had a horrifying thought, and it's that I very well could have read the audiobook of this. Thank God I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) So, listeners, there's a fucking parrot in this book. But unlike... It talks. But unlike the, like, funny stereotype of, like, the parrot repeating shit... The parrot is intelligent, but with a limited vocabulary. What's name? Instead of using that limited vocabulary for humor, Terry just like has the the parrot say "What's that? What's that? What's name?" Whenever it can't think of the name of something in its vocabulary, it is annoying. <laughs> it is a bit that was not funny the first time, and. I might have actually I might have cheered when that parrot died. (laughs) Yeah, same. I mean, I think everybody in the book cheered when the parrot died and like heaved a sigh of really when it came back. It's just it was not good. I would very much like to read reviews of the top of like this book when it came out because I too would like to know who else wanted to fucking kill that parrot. Terry, you're from the nation that brought us. He's pining for the fjords. Do better. Do better, Terry. Yes, you are from the nation that has brought us the best parrot humor. See, I wasn't thinking about the dead parrot sketch because I still haven't seen the dead parrot sketch. But I was thinking about Iago and that made it worse. Like, not Shakespeare Iago, Aladdin Iago. Ah, yeah. (laughs) What? You said that there might be a resemblance? Which I think this still predates by like two years. It it's does. Just, there's 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 bad parrots out there. All parrots are bastards. All parrots are parodies of themselves. That was a really bad pun, and I wish to not have said it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm not touching that okay. one. Okay. Now let's talk about <gasps> the uh, what are, what are their names again? The Tezamen. Yeah. 
And Quetz over Quaddle. Quetz over Quaddle isn't the pu- isn't the huge problem for me. I like. I think that cargo cults are an interesting, like, phenomenon that just are usually misses with fantasy literature, um, because everybody does the same plot with a cargo cult. Can you explain what that is really quick? Oh, so um, a cargo cult is a sociological phenomenon uh, that appear that started appearing in World War II. There might be a better, less um, that it's it's a it's a weird. Hold is on, this I'm gonna... where like something random appears that they don't that like the culture doesn't have the context for, and then they venerate it? Yeah. Um, which it became a it became a really big thing in World War II because isolated islands would see like planes getting shot down and shit and crash land on their island, or we would go and bulldoze a section of island for a yeah. for a temporary airstrip and leave stuff and the 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 local inhabitants would build um, like wooden representations of of planes and stuff on the 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 beach to to draw more you know um excess spam and stuff yeah wasn't there also a bit of the sort of you know we have to provide for and civilize the various peoples of the world of dropping in like bibles and food that's a little bit i think that's a little bit later that's yeah, yeah, um, that's different. I, the, the the main the main thing is like that. There's no context for these, and um, and it's like it's it's typically like how outside sources will get weirdly contextualized within a culture. Um, I mean, that's not quite what we have here, but it's similar. Oh God, is is them worshiping the luggage a literal cargo cult? I hate that. I, I hate that that's true. Oh boy. I'm gonna go beat my head over. I'm gonna go beat myself over the head with this rum bottle right now because I that, hate this. I don't <laughs> necessarily think that Terry Pratchett meant that joke, but that might be the best joke related to it in the whole book. <laughs> yeah, we 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 made something good out of all of this. That's become such like a tired trope that like comedy, fantasy, and sci-fi just like ends up making the people that worship the thing look like you know dumb basically yeah it, it, it's a very like used in fiction a lot of the time it's very racist um yeah i like it, it is a real sociological phenomenon that happens yeah, for sure and i'm sure it's very interesting i've only now heard of like the phrase for it and the context i think there are ways you can implement it in fiction that are interesting um like i'm gonna go on a brief side tangent here but like in the Delta Green role-playing game universe, um, alien technology causes a weird cargo cult, like, amongst humanity. Because we don't have any way to textualize it, and it's a thing that, like, it's a tube that basically kills people. Oh, hey, it must be magic and stuff. And so there's, like, this weird contextualization of it. I think you can do interesting things with fiction. I think that, like... For sure. When it's implemented without the realization of where it comes from in the real world... It leads to stuff like the Tesman, where we get a lot of very. This is this this. It really feels like the uh, pyramids all over again, where 
Terry is just skimming the surface of a non-white culture. Taking what he's read about it in a couple books and like not even particularly in-depth ones and slapping some of it into a fantasy culture. Or like trying to make fun of the tropes but then just falling right back into those tropes himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he like lampshades like how d- how like dumb like the Okay. I'm going to have to dig into that with Ponsidic form. But yeah, no, he he like lampshot lampshades how bad it is that like people have these stereotypes, but he just uses the same goddamn stereotypes. And I'm like this isn't enough. Not the first time no, this happened. I'm I'm sick of it. <laughs> I wish we could stop having it. Should I talk about Ponce de Quirm? Or Please go ahead. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, okay, so there's Beyond having the called... worst name. It just, Ponce de Quirm sounds so awful in my head. It, it yeah, does. it sounds unfortunately like other words. It's just, it's a bad, it's like the bad, it's like the reverse of like, good brain feels. Like it's the it's the reverse of Laviolus, which like Laviolus is a good name. Uh, it reads a little weird to me. <laughs> eh. Anyway, uh when he showed up, many thanks. Ponce de Quirm, me in the note. No. We were searching for the fountain of youth. No. <laughs> uh and that is still my reaction. <laughs> um Hmm, where do I start? Uh, the whole thing about, like, silly European explorers who, uh, have said these things, like, who just, like, waltz into these places and put their own interpretations, but also, I think making a a very obviously Ponce de Leon insert, this kind of ditzy, amiable, fun character, uh, no, please don't. He was a conquistador and a colonist. It just amplifies, like, how much he's not pushing back on the colonialist bullshit he's using. Uh, also, I have issues with the whole Fountain of Youth myth, because it is it is um, bullshit, also. Uh, but I get that this is a silly, fun comedy, and also, he probably doesn't really know anything about Ponce de Leon, except that he was an explorer. It made the colonial stuff worse to have an actual explorer there. Because, like, we've seen this stuff where, like, ah, ha, ha, see the explorers, but also falling into the exact same stereotype before. But we haven't seen the explorers, I don't think. Also, why, why, there's no explore. Uh, we're not even, into, I don't know why he's there. He's just there. I feel like Terry really should have stuck with writing what he knew. Like, the, the stuff that's, like, fantasy London and the fantasy UK slash European countryside and fantasy European politics. Like those parts are all solid. It's, and I mean, unfortunately this is kind of the Rincewind novels a lot because Rincewind is the one who goes exciting places and sees exciting things and flees from them in terror, narrowly escaping with his life. But yeah, it's it's not good. Also, have we mentioned that this is the tired old like Mesoamerican sacrifice to their blood yeah. cult thing? Because that that's very much the mm-hmm. entire plot of this section, by the way. 
Yeah, it's it's very like it's tired. It's it's rote. Um, it's not particularly based on like a lot of history. Like the Aztecs did sacrifice, but it was not like the cultural depictions of them, where it's like, oh, you're seeing like thousands of people slaughtered at a time. Um, like this is a thing where it's like, oh, I took arch- I, I took archaeology classes in like college with like a professor who might have been very hot. Um, <laughs> I, I, there are a few men who could rock a sideburn in the modern, modern day, but we're good. Um, but yeah, his entire thing was like Mesoamerican cultures and like, and so like a lot of our, like, like the anthropology and archaeology courses I took in college were like focused a lot of them. So this feels like very lazy work. Yeah, I'm I'm there from yeah. the Fountain of Youth perspective. I had a favorite professor who was like real real harsh on the Fountain of Youth myth. <laughs> and I think I think part of that is like uh, like going back to two episodes ago when we had Amar on, they uh brought up the thing of like they would enjoy they would have enjoyed pyramids more if it was a story about like sort of Western European coded monarchy instead of uh, the Egyptian pharaohs because it just it would have it wouldn't have had that s- cultural context that made everything mm-hmm. feel a little bit off. Yeah, and I don't know how you do it with sort maybe, but I mean it, it's just it, it's maybe this is a thing that maybe shouldn't have been written. Um. I mean, maybe Offler or something. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's one of those things that I'm like, like the minute, the minute I was like, there, there's, there's a point where we get the Tesman first introduced, where they're going into the whole, they're parodying the, or, or Terry's parodying the, the myth that like the Aztecs didn't have the wheel. Um, Is that what that was about? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like I did not but instead know what of having the wheels, like they had wheels, but they're lying flat on the ground and they're getting pulled. And and I was like immediately, well, fuck, I know where this is. This is going. And uh, yeah, Aaron, and you thought we wouldn't get past an hour recording this. <laughs> also, I'm pretty sure they referenced. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they referenced like the Maya calendar that came up with. Which apocalypse was it? Twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. I'm the... pretty sure that was referenced somewhere in yeah. there. So for the listeners, we did have Amr on uh, uh, to help us tell you what parts of pyramids were less than less than great. Uh, we felt pretty confident that we could tackle the small chunk of the book that dealt with Mesoamerican bullshit without any help. Ah, uh, because that part is just really bad, and we didn't feel like we needed any extra help saying yeah, that. Yeah, we just pretty much have to tell you what happens in it. You'd be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, that sucks." Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's just there in the name Quetzalcoatl. I don't even know what the joke is in that. It's uh, Quetzalcoatl, but then coat overcoat. Is that why? It's just a pun. It's just a really bad pun that's like it's not even a pun. making it's fun just of a real a thing. Different word inside. Yeah, yeah anyway. no, it's it's a. Uh, it's like it's like oh, you I read see. that. Quetz- God, that's such a bad pun that it took like you explaining it and then me thinking about it for me to figure it out. 
it's I feel like that's the moment for me where rereading this, I was like, oh right, that's how this goes. Yeah, no. It it is a little bit the jelly baby in yeah. this book. Yeah. It's slapping yeah. a British cut of paint on it. I think at least we can we have one comfort, which is that Ponsticorm does you know he does get what's coming to him with another one of my apparently what he believes <laughs> yeah, is coming to him. Yeah, but which yeah, that so that's, so that's interesting. interesting. And and also I it's one of my favorite little bits of this book. Um, is that he found the fountain of youth and definitely felt himself getting younger, but that he should have boiled the water first. Which just like I like that, and I don't think it was necessarily even that intentional as this like commentary on colonialist stupidity. Yes, you you boil you should boil water from a natural source and not just drink it. That part was stuff that we wish has not been in the book. Anything else we wish had been done differently? I really wish that if it was going to adapt anything from Faustus, that it had adopted the Pope pranking bit, because I think that would be hilarious. I really want to see Rincewind sneaking around behind some kind of Pope equivalent and just pulling shit. Uh, just wreaking havoc in the the, the, uh, the avenue of the small y- yeah. gods. Yeah, I mean, there's... So, for reference, in Dr. Faustus, the Marlowe play, there was a bit where where Faustus, for some reason, is like, hey, A, can we ride a dragon to Rome? B, can we become invisible and just mess with the Pope? It's... Very good bit. Yeah. I Okay, so, but bouncing off that, and I did, in the doc, bounce off that, I kind of wish just there'd been, like an ounce of mischief in in the Faustus character because there's so much fun bullshit you could get up to with uh, a demon giving you the powers of a demon and they just don't. Yeah. <laughs> They're very boring wishes and they have very boring ends and I get that there's a point to that but we could have had it all. Yeah, I think that gets back to my point of this book should have been either shorter or longer. Like, shorter and it would have been the fun goofs and longer and it would have actually been able to like do anything fun like there could have been a point where eric realized oh yeah these wishes aren't any good uh let me desperately claw for something that will be good uh but also it was kind of tied to the three wish structure Mm -hmm. for some reason yeah presumably just give the book structure the other thing that i think definitely could have been done better is the whole Eleanor bit because it's almost something decent. Eleanor being the right home of that, Troy that right that that we get to that bit and see that you know she's aged and you know has kids and her figure might not be what it used to be and it's kind of just played off as like an ugly joke which is not good. Um, whereas. She has a mustache, and I wish she would stop doing yeah. that joke. Whereas I feel like it actually could have been a little bit of a actually interesting commentary on the Odyssey and the Iliad of, you know, this this war is going on for a really long time. Like, do you actually expect Helen to stay completely unchanged and static? Yeah, I do. There is a seed of something where it's like, because in... in 
in all of the source material, well, I don't, I don't know about the Iliad and the Odyssey, but definitely in Faustus, uh, Helen is pretty much treated as, like, a trophy, like, a, a symbol, something on a pedestal, whereas it's like, oh, here, she made a choice, and these guys are just fighting over her because they want to fight over her. Right. Like, where it, like, Because they want to fight and they need that, an excuse. Yeah. Yeah, it, like, kind of gives her that, like, agency. Which is nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wish it didn't also do it with the accompanying uh, jokes. Yeah, that it's it's almost saying yep. something real. Of like, it's just so close and misses the mark. And despite it being a, a short book, there's quite a few things packed in here in terms of references. Yeah. Uh, uh, Herena the Anna Herod, what was name? Sorry, Justin. <laughs> um, shows up at some point in, in a cameo. Um, Does she? When the fuck did Herena show up? Uh, I probably just it's like at the very beginning. Forgot. I think that's why. Page I forgot. five. Yeah, Herena the henna-haired Herodin. Oof, that's a yeah in a quiet corner of the mended because it's that's when Rincewind right. is is pan-dimensionally running. Yeah. Uh, I loved the description of Ankh-Mor Park as well. No enemies had ever taken Ankh-Mor Park. Well, technically they had quite often. The city welcomed free-spending barbarian invaders, but somehow the puzzled raiders always found after a few days that they didn't own their own horses anymore, and within a couple of months they were just another minority group with its own graffiti yeah. and food shops. Oh my god, that's that was good. It's a good line. Ankh-Mor Park always wins. <laughs> uh, also, did anybody else notice that the right of Ashkent uh, doesn't so much buying death is just to have oh yeah, yeah yeah that's that's a thing that's that's a fun little bit um it's just like you know the the equivalent of just like texting death and being like yo you up <laughs> it's the right of asking death over oh that was really, really I will bad. walk I'm so over sorry to- I'm I will walk across the entire Walk country. to Florida, I dare you. I will face God and walk backwards into Florida. <laughs> I would sing and I would walk a thousand miles, but we don't have the rights for that. We were talking about footnotes and the, the footnote near the beginning that obliquely, embarrassingly talks about uh, the the uh, wizard's role in sorcery was oh, yeah. pretty oh, spectacular. Oh god, yeah. The... That everybody was, you know, everybody was definitely not there at the time. No siree. They were off sick, visiting their aunt, or doing research with the door locked while humming loudly and had no idea what was going on outside. Uh, God, that's a mood. Uh, there had been done some desultory talk about putting up a statue to Rincewind, but by the curious alchemy that tends to apply in these sensitive issues, this quickly became a plaque, then a note on the role of honor, and finally a motion of censure for being improperly dressed. Is... Oh, is he improperly dressed because he's not wearing his socks? Yeah. Oh. This book has some good bits. Yeah. Every time Death mentioned Rincewind was a reference I enjoyed. Yeah. Death saying it would be a million to one chance. Yes. Uh, exactly a million to one chance. And everybody you know says. exactly what's going to oh. happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's another one of those things where it's like, I suddenly know what's going to happen and it makes me happy. Yeah. I I enjoy that sometimes. And this is where I feel like I feel like this is a book that had promise. Um and 
uh, it's just unfortunate that that it didn't really live up to that promise. Yeah. I think it's just honestly unfortunate that we're reading every single Discworld novel and doing a deep dive into it (laughs) because I mean this is like fine for 1990 yeah but we're also doing a podcast episode yeah. on it. So. I like like the book I'm concurrently reading uh, because I'm actually like starting to read non-Discworld stuff because I have time now. Um, is I'm reading at this this at the same time as Gideon the Ninth, and it's just which yeah, is a no, good book. It was a chore to not just like get that horny skeleton book in my eyeballs, and instead I had to do it with Rincewind and his. Goofy ass, horny thirteen yeah, year olds. No. Yeah, I, I, which which is one of those things. It's like, okay, well, we'll go. We'll, can we go on this tangent for like thirty seconds? Yep. Rincewind is a bad fuck up character because Rincewind does not have any perceivable goals. Gideon is a good fuck up character because Gideon is a piece of shit. But Gideon actually wants stuff out of life. Justin, stop banging your table. <laughs> Sorry. Shame on you, Justin. I'm very. This is one of those things where I'm just passionate. like, I'm very, I'm very particular about my protagonist. You are. He's not a great protagonist. You are an individual who say. talks with your hands. Rincewind is a antagonist. <laughs> or just an agonist, maybe. See, that's another thing that agrees with my, like, idea of, like, a mischievous foil to Rincewind in this. If, like, you had a protagonist who wanted things that weren't dumb bullshit. Uh, yeah. Rincewind would actually be a really fun foil for that. But unfortunately, he, I think he has to be the protagonist in this because Eric has absolutely, like, no character outside of being kind of a gross 15-year-old. Yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's a damn God, sock. can you imagine if Moist... Yeah. Had summoned oh Rincewind. my god oh that's that, a good book uh, that's, that's a book a good I would book. read the fuck out of I want it now oh my god that's a good book shit sorry Justin you'll get that reference in about two years <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh that just revolutionized that concept for me <laughs> I think Justin just my head against the desk. Thank you for not actually. I'm doing not that. actually hitting it because I don't want to cause waveforms, but I'm. Although, I'm, I think that Moist also probably wants to not be doing this about as much as Rincewind. But I mm. feel like Moist would. Yeah, I think. I feel like broadly, Moist would see the opportunities present in this situation and be clever. Yes. So yeah, because you need somebody who's pushing forward. So that Rincewind can backpedal. Yeah. Eric is intelligent, but he is not clever. And that is the problem. As most 13-year-olds yeah. are. I don't know. I, 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 a lot of 13-year-olds are dumbasses. <laughs> Just personal experience. Yeah, I mean, we've all been there. Yeah. Yeah, I was 13. I was a huge dumbass. Oh, as was I. I was uh, justifying... Uh, flunking all my classes as maybe if I get kicked out I can go back to my old school uh, which was also a private school and would not have I don't 13 is a real supremely dumb age to be
joking, like, we don't have anything, right? Like, do we have to defend, like, death ex Rincewind enemies to lovers? And then I saw the still- then I remembered he still remembered him at the end of the video, and I'm like, huh. Maybe? <laughs> I like them as, like, enemies, but, like, fond enemies. Enemy mine. I will- I will go down with my personal headcanon until canon- gives me good evidence otherwise, which I'm sure will happen in a future book, that death is Arrow Ace. Oh no, for sure. Also kind of Rincewind. Yeah. Yeah, no. Rincewind does Rincewind feels like Can they be very like platonic aromantic. life enemies. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I I think Rincewind has some like generically dudely like gross thoughts but like I feel like he almost does that because he feels like he's supposed to though yeah I like I, I'm willing to like put like until until Terry gives me good evidence to otherwise I will support both death and Rincewind being like aromantic and asexual also you can be like Aeroace and like you know think about things like that like it's not yeah. mutually exclusive <laughs> We have had four books. What are Rincewind's actual, like, desires in life? What? Like, like, he doesn't seem to be, like, particularly motivated by anything beyond just, like... He wants logic and order, but those don't exist. Surviving the book. And also to just hang out in the library. I think he wants security. not be bothered. I think that's yeah. what he yeah. wants, but he okay. can't have it because he's Rincewind. And at this point, he's been running for his life through the dungeon dimensions for X number of mm-hmm. ooh, however long time works like, there. He seems genuinely happy when he's just getting to, like, bum around the library and go for a drink sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And okay. perform appendectomies. Oh, that pun. Uh, I'm just checking here. What's the next Rincewood book that we've got? I'm just curious. It's an interesting times. Oh, God, is it interesting times? No, no we're going to need a sense to be here on that one. Yeah. We've got we've got seven books between there then and now, so so I gave this book three out of seven deadly sins. I gave it four out of nine circles of hell. 450,000 out of a million chances. Uh, and I gave it 1.4 out of three wishes. We're actually very consistent. I mean, I'm wondering if there's some flocking going on. Okay, so our next book, I'm pulling this up, uh, is Moving Pictures. I'm trying to see if there's like a date that we can get for the actual public, like the actual release date, because I'm just now. It's also 1990. Yep. Yeah. And it's our first industry novel... Um, so, um, this is, this is showing up as the, the, like, release date is, like, November of 1990. So, hey, I was, uh, I was born for this book. I was, like, less than a month old, but. At least according um, to my recollection, it's a pretty good book to be born around the time of. All right. Book 10, Moving Pictures, a novel of Discworld. Discworld's pesky alchemists are up to their old tricks again. This time, they've discovered how to get gold from silver. The silver screen, that is. 
hearing the siren call of Holy Wood is one Victor Tugelbend, a would-be wizard turned extra. He can't sing, he can't dance, but he can handle a sword, sort of, and now he wants to be a star. So does Theta Weasel, an ambitious ingenue from a little town, where else, you've probably never heard of. But the click-clack, the click-click of moving pictures isn't just stirring up dreams inside Discworld. Holy Wood's magic is drifting out into the boundaries of the universes, where raw realities, the could-have-beens, the might-bees, the never-wers, the wild ideas are beginning to ferment into a really stinky brew. It's up to Victor and Gaspo the Wonder Dog, a star if everyone was born, to reign in the chaos and bring order back to a star-struck Discworld. And they're definitely not ready for their close-up. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I'm very, I am very into old Hollywood shit. Yeah, this is going to be right up your alley then. It's, yeah. It's, okay. it's a break Good. from what we've gotten before. It's where things start really leaning hard into my observing this world changes it thing. I am so excited for the first of these that are going to, yeah, because I, I know a very different Discworld than the one we have right now. And I'm excited to mm-hmm. see it start. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This is the first of the so-called industry novels uh, where things try to change and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. It's um, this one, The Truth and the Moist Books, right? I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, would you call soul music? Soul music is sort of industry tangential. Uh, no, soul music is its own thing. It's, uh, That's true. Soul music, is, soul music is a death book. The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it, but say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com. <laughs>